Well, church, pause with me just for a moment and think about what we're celebrating. Think about Advent. Think about what we're leading up to with Christmas. We who subscribe to a biblical worldview can certainly enjoy the Christmas season, the songs, the celebrations, the family, the decorations, the gifts. But at the center of it all, of course, is Jesus. And however, we must calibrate, and as one person I was talking with this week, recalibrate, continue to recalibrate ourselves, bringing us back to the center of what we do as Jesus, because we can drift away from that in our celebration. And so maybe my opening question to you this morning is this, how does your Jesus of Christmas compare to this Jesus of Christmas, or, or this Jesus of Advent. And it's my prayer this morning through the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, it will help us to all recalibrate our understanding of who Jesus is as the promised Savior. So you're probably in Isaiah 9, as Bob read for us, and continuing on with our Advent series in Isaiah. Last week we looked at the Savior needed. Because of sin in the world, we are desperate and we are in need of a Savior, and God himself has provided one. Now, Isaiah's immediate context in writing where we were last week in Isaiah 59 was the sin of Israel in breaking their covenant with God, and therefore he has judged them, and therefore Israel has been exiled and defeated into Babylon. But the greater redemptive context is that all of us have sinned, and all of us are in spiritual exile from our creator. We all fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59 last week reminded us that there is no human being that can reconcile that separation. It has to be from Jesus, and so God himself provided the Savior in Jesus Christ. This week, we go back in Isaiah 50 chapters. We take a look not only that God provided a Savior, but that he also, through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah promised one. And as always, we got to set some context here. We're jumping around the Old Testament. If you're, if you're visiting with us, usually what we do is we go straight through books of the Bible. We go straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called expositional preaching. And that is where we, we expose the meaning of the text and then we apply the meaning of the text. But then every once in a while we'll jump into a series such as this as we prepare our hearts for Advent. And so then i got to do a little bit more work as we jump around in the Old Testament. There are three primary rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, and context. We've got to remember all of those things. And so we're, we're jumping into Isaiah 9. And so what is the context? We've already had in Isaiah 6 the dramatic vision of the throne room with Isaiah, where he is in the throne room of God himself, and he falls on his face in awe and reverence and says, Holy, holy, holy. As the cherubim, the seraphim around him say, we were in midweek this past Wednesday in Revelation where the, there's worship going on around the throne 24 hours a day, 365 days a year with, with the living creatures and the elders and they are casting down their crowns and they are saying worthy and they are saying holy, holy, holy. Isaiah was commissioned after that to go and preach and God says it's not going to go very well. Because they're going to reject you. They're going to continue to harden their hearts, but continue. Nevertheless, their unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness to his ultimate covenant. 
Israel then is soon confronted with a crisis. King Ahaz is bullied and threatened by the nations around him. And instead of running off to God for deliverance, what does he do? He trusts in the nations around him. He trusts in Assyria to save him. And ultimately, that backfires. And the nation of Assyria then actually turns the tables and invades Israel. That is what that is what the ultimate judgment is. And so as that is upon them in chapter 9, some of you have a subject heading in chapter 8 that says the coming Assyrian invasion. That is the context, that they are about to be invaded. And indeed, some of their cities have already been invaded. And yet, even in the midst of witnessing God through Isaiah, what he calls them and judgment and the facts of their judgment coming now to fruition by extension, all of us, he's telling us to trust him and not give in to panic because he is in control and he still has the power to deliver. He is still faithful despite our unfaithfulness. God promises a savior in the midst of that context for Israel and for us in our context. Look again at Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious by way of the sea the, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. And for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So unpacking this in context, why are the people in anguish and gloom? Because they're about to have their front door kicked in by the Assyrian Empire. That's why they're in anguish and gloom. In fact, no one knows this more than Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Well, if you're looking for a map, I'm going to give you a map because you know one's coming up. So here's Israel. Up here is Naphtali in the orange. And then Zebulun's down there in the yellow. So oh, I got a Christmas tree in my way this week. Naphtali and then Zebulun, right? And so Assyria is somewhere over here, right? <laughs> So Assyria then is going to come down through the north, and they're going to come down exactly through Naphtali and Asher. And so they were the first wave. So that's why they specifically are in gloom, because they are the ones that have experienced the Assyrian Empire going right through their territory. Now, watch this. What God allowed to happen as judgment, after warning them for hundreds and hundreds of years, of course, he will turn around to save there will be deliverance. There will be glory coming again. He says, where? Where is that going to come? Not in the north where we were, where I, where I was pointing, but in the land beyond the Jordan in Galilee. And so by God's grace, we are in the book of Matthew, generally, and we have seen time and time again where Jesus has been ministering where? In Galilee. That is his headquarters We've seen Jesus doing his ministry, his preaching, his teaching, his healing in Galilee. Matthew, as you might remember, quoted this passage directly in Matthew chapter 4. If we were to scan back there and looking at verses 
15 and 16, it says this, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And verse 17 going on says, from this time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says, this is Jesus. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the one that Isaiah spoke of. By quoting directly that passage in Isaiah, he is saying Jesus is the one who would be giving hope, giving light. God has promised the Savior, and he will become to be seen in Galilee, and people will get it. Look at verse 2 again in Isaiah 9. It says, the people walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Light is coming. The darkness and the gloom of exile and sin and hopelessness will be defeated. If we scan verses 3 through 5, there will be joy and rejoicing, plentiful harvest and prosperity, oppression and exile will be gone. There will be victory where there was defeat. We have a quick flashback to Judges chapter 7 when Gideon and his 300 men brought defeat to thousands of Midianite soldiers in their army. There will be no need for battle clothes, for boots, for swords. All of those remnants of the battles you saw in Isaiah 9 where it says those, those battle clothes that were dipped in blood or rather rolled in blood from the battle and the boots and all of that is going to be what? Firewood. It's going to be fuel for the fire. We're not going to need it anymore. You're not going to need your battle clothes anymore. There's a near and a far fulfillment, just like we talked about last week. Israel will certainly see some of this renewal and some of this deliverance going on in their history. But the far fulfillment is for all of us, the people of God. It will go beyond Israel as it has always been designed to do. It was never just Israel. The gospel, the plan of redemption, is always has been global. For all the world, every tribe and tongue and nation. A light will come, and it will come through Galilee, and it will come through Jesus. One commentator writes this, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. And from that place, he launched salvation for the world. Think about that. Again, think of context. Think of what's going on in Israel right now. Think about the despair, the darkness, the despondency, the fear. Talk about fear, worry, and anxiety, fear of Monday. You don't have an army beating down your door that is going to burn your city to the ground and take everyone captive, right? I'm not saying any of you don't have bad Mondays, but that's a bad day. That's the context where there once was gloom and anguish. There will be healing and there will be light. Point, the promised Savior will bring, bring light to the darkness. The promised Savior will bring light to the darkness. And light here, of course, is symbolic. We are talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness. Like the old gospel song, I saw the light. To see the light means to see things clearly that have been hidden. To understand things that you have not understood previously. Walking around your house at night is always dangerous, is it not? Especially if you have little ones with toys and dinosaurs with spiky backs. Or if you have puppies that leave their half-chewed hard bones in the way or something like that. Or my biggest nemesis, the half-open bathroom door. 
Like, because when I get up in the middle, there's been some really, really close calls lately, people, where you just like suddenly realize that that sucker's right there. I'm just like, slide that out of the way. Walking around in the darkness is hard. Why? Because you can't see anything. That's the point. Spiritual darkness is the same thing. You're walking around and you don't understand where you're going. But in the light, you walk around with confidence. You can see what things to avoid. You can see the way you're supposed to be going. The promised Savior will bring light for us to see our way spiritually. To see the true spiritual condition, as we saw last week, of our need for a Savior. Our true spiritual reality. That's what I think is one of the hardest things to convince Americans is that there's a spiritual reality going on that we just don't understand. That we are separated from our creator, that we have a need for a savior. And when the light bulb comes on, we get that. We understand that we're sinners. We understand that we're separated from God. And we understand what he's done to reconcile us in the promised savior. The promised savior who brings such light can only be Jesus Christ. The scripture is extremely clear. John 1.4 tells us that in him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.9 tells us that the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. And maybe most famously and notably, Jesus of himself, in John chapter 8, verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is Jesus. This is Jesus remembering what Isaiah had said, saying, that's me. I am the promised Savior. I am the light of the world. So straight up, take a moment to do some spiritual inventory of yourself this Advent. Are you walking in spiritual light or are you walking in spiritual darkness? And this is different for those who are Christians and those who have not become Christians already. Those who have not become Christians already I love you, thank you for coming, I hope you continue to come, but you're walking in spiritual darkness. Until the light of Christ illuminates your need for a savior and the reality of who Jesus is and grants you that repentance and that faith, you are walking in spiritual darkness. But for Christians, we are the ones who are supposedly have seen the light, right? The ones that walk in light, except for those times when we don't right? It doesn't change us positionally before God. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are holy. We are his child. We are adopted into his family. All of those things are true, but sometimes when we embrace sin, when we give in to those moments of sin and frustration, when we embrace idolatry, when we, when we get wooed by the world and its philosophies or whatnot, we're walking in darkness temporarily. We walk off the path. We veer off the path we have to remember that we can all veer off so quickly like king ahaz <clears throat> and trust in other things we can be seduced by the culture around us be lured away into the comparison trap <clears throat> of envying other people other people's kids other people's houses jobs marriages bodies wealth status whatever have those spiritual blind spots Christian, <clears throat> the goal is to have the Spirit through His Word illuminate our lives so much so that there are no dark spots. That's the goal. That's sanctification. 
Isn't that fun? That we get told time and time again where we fall short. Oop, there's a dark spot. There's a dark spot. There's where you're following darkness. There's where you're following darkness. The light of Christ must come and shine. Luke reminds us that if we have that, that's what we want, the goal, so that no part of our heart is dark. Christian, that's the goal. God calls us to high standards because he is no ordinary savior. Look at verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How will this promised Savior bring salvation to the whole world? By being born as a child. By being a baby. Wait, what? A, a baby. How? Isaiah, we do not need a baby here. We need a warrior. We need like Jason Bourne. We need like the Navy SEALs. We need a tank. We need a lot of tanks. We need F-18s. We need that big ugly purple guy from the Avengers. We need, that's what we need. We don't need a baby. How is a baby going to help us? Immediate context, right? Remember what's happening. The Assyrians are at their back door. But this is no ordinary baby. Isaiah says he will be a son, a son who will rule as king, a son who will shoulder the full authority of governing the world. He will take that on himself. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor or Miraculous Counselor, a powerful counselor. There's also in this word uh, hints of a, a war general, a commander, a powerful, all-knowing war commander whose wisdom, watch this, is always right. And against the context of the Israel kings, right, they did not have wisdom that was always right, did they? This would be a wonderful counselor, and his advice will always be right. His name will be called Mighty God, who is all-powerful. His name will be called Eternal Father, who loves us like a father loves us, but his love is perfect, and his love is forever. He will be called the Prince of Peace, who will reign in peace, settling all wars and conflicts. Again, shameless plug for midweek. Wednesday, we were talking about the scene in the throne room in chapter 4, chapter 5. And we had Jesus sitting on his throne. And before him was a sea of glass. It's representing that he does not rule in chaos. He rules in peace. He's not worried about anything. There's nothing outside of his control. That's the way the Prince of Peace rules. Oh, okay, well... Not your average baby then after all, Isaiah. As a matter of fact, there are some things here that are, are more like God things as opposed to baby things. There are some human things in there. This baby sounds more like a, a hybrid baby. Part baby, part God. A baby who is both human and divine. Someone born, watch, born, remember, like a human, but who can do things that no other human can do. So in short, this, the promised Savior will be both God and man. The promised Savior will be both God and man. And church, once again, we're left with the obvious conclusion. 
Isaiah is talking about Jesus Christ, truly man and truly God. Jesus born as a human baby, yet totally God. Look at the different names that Isaiah uses here. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. The government is on his shoulders. He's ruling, he's reigning. We see echoes of this in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 8, and in the same region where there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of those heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see this scene. We see the words of Isaiah echoing throughout Luke and his account. This indeed is a human baby that is born of a human being, but this is also a baby who is God, who is worshipped by thousands of angels. And men fall down in terror because they know he is God. Haven't we seen over and over again in Matthew where he makes it clear that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh? Haven't we seen time and time again in Matthew miraculously doing things that only God can do, raising from the dead, healing, commanding creation to be still and it listening? Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostle Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God where the fullness of God dwells bodily, and Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds everything, watch this, in the universe by the word of his power. That is the king of kings. That is the one who is ruling. That is Jesus. Jesus himself in the Great Commission proclaims that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's one of those non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. Jesus has to be fully human, and he has to be fully God. Truly human and truly God. He has to be both. All of the church fathers unanimously agreed that Jesus was both man and God. We just read the Apostles' Creed that declared that as well. So how does that help us in 2021 America? The men in our Wednesday morning Bible study, again, shameless plug, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews screams this over and over again. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 17. It says, He therefore had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted has to represent us as man. He has to be human, but he also has to be God because there's no human that can possibly pay for our sin. He represents us. He pays our sin. If you are struggling with temptation and the pull of sin, if you are suffering with the effects of sin, the holidays are always good to remind us of that, right? The holidays are always good to remind us of the dysfunctions in our families and in our relationships, the things we don't have, the loved ones 
that we have lost, that we are grieving, that makes all the sense in the world if Jesus is also truly man, that he understands. Hebrews says that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He can't feel any of that if he is just a, transcend, or a transcendent God. Not only does he understand and sympathize with that, because he is man and God, he has done something about it, church. He has remedied the problem. Ray Ortland Jr. in his Isaiah commentary says this. He says, look at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeated his enemies e easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Church, a savior has been promised, and Jesus, fully man and fully God, is that savior, not just for Israel, not just for now, but for always and for all people who will come to him. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. CSB renders this Hebrew a little more smoothly here. ESV is a little clunky. It says, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign over the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on to forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Did you guys catch all that? He will have dominion, authority, power over all kingdoms and all governments. He will reign over the throne of his father David, or of David, the greatest king of Israel. He will establish the eternal throne, and he will sustain it in justice and righteousness for all eternity. He will accomplish this how? Not by the zeal of himself, but by the zeal of the Lord, the God of Israel, and he will continue this kingdom forever. Dry throat's not going to get me today. In justice and righteousness. How? As an official representative of Jesus, of God, of the Father, of the throne, of all of that. That is Jesus. The zeal of the Lord. We see Yahweh. If it's in your Bible, in all caps, it means Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of Israel, Jehovah, the Almighty God. That's how Jesus will do this. This is a kingdom language, church. The promised Savior will be tied in with the God of Israel. He will continue his kingdom forever in justice and righteousness as an official representative of God on earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the promised Savior will not only bring light to the darkness, he will not only have to be God and man, but he will also be king of all the ages. The promised savior will be king of all the ages. And you see how this goes far beyond even just religion as something as a personal belief. That's one of the other issues with our Americanized Christianity, right? Believe what you want to believe. It's cool. Just don't tell me about it. It's your own private faith. What you believe should be private, 
Don't tell anybody about it. Don't force your ideology on me. I'll believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. Our faith is never meant to be private. Our faith is personal, but it's never meant to be private. Why? Because Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of all the ages. The ages here in Israel, in Isaiah 9, and the ages today of our governments in 2021 America. This goes far beyond just religion as something that we privately believe, does it not? This goes far beyond the imitations of this truth and the cults. It's not Joseph Smith of Mormonism. It's not Charles Taylor Russell of the Jehovah Witnesses. It's not even the supposedly infallible Pope of Roman Catholicism. It is not a man. It is not something that you privately believe. We are submitting to the rule and the authority and the government of the king of all the ages. Again, we hear this in Luke being echoed. Look at Luke 1, 32 and 33. I think I put these in your bulletins. Is it, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him, watch this, the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do not think that the people who read this early account of Matthew did not have Isaiah 9 ringing in their ears when they read this. They absolutely did and they knew exactly what it meant. Luke said this about who? He said it about Jesus. He's no ordinary savior. He's not just a baby. He is king of kings, lord of lords of all the ages. And truth, church rather, we need this truth embedded in our souls now more than ever. If we are able to make it through this life in one spiritual peace, we must have this echoing in our souls. We do not just privately believe in something. We submit to the king of all the ages the king of all governments, the one who is ruling and reigning forever. He is not merely king of my devotional time. He's not merely king of my private belief. He's not king of the hour plus that I give him on Sunday mornings. He's not really merely king of Israel or king of the disciples 2,000 years ago. He is king now, and he's king forever. That's what we must remember. Again, in Revelation and amidst the many things which we will not understand in the book of Revelation, we see one thing crystal clear, that Jesus Christ is king and that he's on his throne. And he is ruling and reigning. And Revelation 4.8 tells us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's the king of all the ages. Why are heavenly hosts singing all day, every day around the throne? Because as Revelation goes on to say, he's the only one worthy to sit on the throne. He's the only one worthy. Why? Because he was the lamb that was slain. Because he was Jesus. Jesus is in full authority of the world's events, even to the end of the world and the dawn of the next. Why? Because he's the lamb of God. Revelation tells us. He's the one slain for us on the cross, the Passover lamb who turns away the wrath of God and provides salvation. And that ultimately, again, is what the promised Savior comes to do, to sacrifice himself. And maybe I can pull this together this morning and pull these threads together and say the promised Savior will bring light to the darkness as both God and man and as the king of all the ages 
And all these things work together to do what he has come to do, to seek and save the lost. And so the promised Savior has come to save. The promised Savior has come to save. Sorry that's not more profound, but that's what he was called to do. And as we know, that's the only person that can do those things. The only person who is the one who was foretold. The only person who brings light to the spiritual darkness. The only one that can be both God and man. The only one who is king of kings and lord of lords forever. But notice, that is in the past tense. He has come. Although Isaiah, of course, is looking into the future of who will come, church, we know Jesus has come. We know that the King of Kings has come. We know that the cross has happened. We know that the resurrection has happened. We know that he has ascended back to the Father, and he is seated at his right hand, and he is ruling, and he is reigning. And one day he will come again. That's what we know. Isn't this Jesus? He brings light. He is both God and man. He is king. And where does Jesus, this promised Savior, need to bring light to you this Advent? Maybe even light for the first time. Opening up your eyes in salvation and understanding that, yes, I am separated from God, and yes, I do need a Savior. Where do you need to understand the significance of Jesus as the promised Savior, as both God and man this Advent? This is that the truth that God, again, is both fully transcendent, he is everywhere at all times in all his fullness and ruling and reigning over all those things, but church, he's also imminently within us. We need to understand that this Advent. We need to take stock of that. We need to understand it deeply in our souls. Where do you need to understand and trust Jesus, the promised Savior, as the King of all the ages? Where are you looking at the news headlines or our personal life crises and giving in to fear and to worry, to anxiety, all the while Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things? Church, this is Jesus, the promised Savior because he brings light, because he's both God and man and king of all. Only this Jesus is the one who can save. So the promised Savior came to save. And we need this salvation we all have the same pen ultimate problem, separated from God and then reconciled by this Savior. And as we continue to walk in that church, let us pray that we can walk more deeply in that understanding. Let us pray that we can walk more faithfully, especially this Christmas, this Advent, as we consider these things that he has done for us as our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we get to sit in your church this morning and we get to hear your word proclaimed. We get to sing songs. We get to fellowship with one another. We get to celebrate the Lord's table and the physical sacrifice of Jesus. But Lord, would you do the work that we can't do in all of those things? We desperately need the Holy Spirit to, to embed these truths in our hearts to cause us to be more faithful, diligent followers of you, to bring glory to God in all that we do. Let no part of our lives be dark. Let us depend fully on Jesus, the God-man. Let us remember that he is sitting, ruling, and reigning right now, the king of all the ages. And let us remember that the promised Savior has come, and he has come to save. 
We pray this in his precious name. Amen.